Well, thank you very much. Coming from stand-up comedy, man. <laughs> Strange times. Ooh, we the swing from the political, the personal, from the animals on to the uh, the visionary. It's just a beautiful thing to behold, my brother. Thank you. From you, that is an honor. I've been a huge fan of you for a long time. So for you to say that to me means means the world. Oh, it's a deep thing. I can see your love for Richard Pryor, man. I walk in your space and I'm just transformed by the geist, the spirit, the esprit of this place, man. Yeah. Hendrix here, Pryor here. Then when you tell me you work with the great Richard Pryor, oh my God. For five weeks, I followed him when I was a young comedian at the comedy store. I went on right after him every night he performed. What was that? It was strange to be in the room with him because uh, when I was a 14-year-old boy, my parents took me to see Live at the Sunset Strip, and I could not believe that anybody could be so funny just talking. That was my first experience with stand-up comedy. Other than that, I'd seen like I'd seen people perform on The Tonight Show, things on those lines. Yeah, but it just it was like ha ha ha. It was okay, you know what I mean. Yeah. But when you see Richard in concert in a movie theater, I couldn't believe how funny it was. It didn't make sense. I'd seen funny movies before, like you know, comedy movies that made you laugh, but nothing, nothing like that. I'm like, this guy's just talking. It changed my life. That's 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 like when you can see the power of art. Yeah. And it's connected to freedom. Because I've always viewed Richard Pryor as the freest man of the 20th century. Certainly, freest black man, along with Muhammad Ali. He's the freest black man in the 20th century. He is so self-determining. Yeah, the choices that he makes has to do with his own sense of self. He doesn't care what other people think. He doesn't care looking for other people's approval, recognition. He's going to be who he is. And he pays a major cost for that, of course. I mean, anytime you're that free in a world of such a, uh, such unfreedom, you're going to pay a major, major cost. Well, he had spectacular honesty. I, I feel like what happened was Lenny Bruce opened the art form up and then Richard Pryor took it to a new place. That's, that's, true. that's, that's, when, that's in terms exactly of the, the origins, the real greats. That's exactly. But then George. Oh, yeah. Oh, George Carlin. Well, he was the most prolific. He did an hour special every year till he died. Every year he and did a new different, hour. each one different. And, mm. But all three. But, I, but you are in that tradition. I was saying, man, when, when I saw you doing the, uh, the dogs and the cats, Getting inside of their souls. I mean, you know how <laughs> profound that is, though, man, as an artist and as a human being to do that. I said, oh my God. And it reminded me of prior. And so when I walk in and I see your connection, I said, I'll be. I'll be. I shouldn't be surprised. Well, it was just being in the room with him was strange. I just couldn't believe it was real. You know, I was in my 20s. You were in the 20s. He was in his. At the end, and uh, like I said, uh, he couldn't walk anymore. They used to have to carry him to the stage. And uh, but he performed sold out every night, sitting in the chair. Yeah, sat in the chair. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. But it was sold out every night. People could you ever get tapes? It. It. I've never seen that before. I don't believe there was tapes of it. I don't believe anybody recorded it. If they did record it, nobody released it. It was just it was, this was in the '90s, and uh, this was again, this was the end of his life. Yeah, he just decided, you know, he was dying. And he just decided he'd go back to his, his love. To go he wanted to go back to his stand-up. Because you got you look at that picture. January 1st, 1963. Brother Pryor, my brother just broke down all Yeah, Jamie, so tell us what, Jamie what did he get? Because I didn't even know what he got arrested 35 for. days in jail, man. He, he had...
had a woman that he knew. He moved to Pittsburgh, apparently, which is when he was about 22 years old. Sisters wrong, but prior though, my man, he uh, he was wild, free, cruel, tender, genius, crazy, wrong as he could be, right as he could yeah. be. He's a human being. He's a complicated human being. Though. I never met him before, but uh, his spirit moves the world to me. Me as well. Well, I think every comic. I've never met a single comic that doesn't think he's one of the most important figures in the history of the art. Probably the most important. It's like him and Lenny Bruce, in my opinion, and then Kennison later. But Kennison for a much, much shorter time. Who would be the greatest female uh, comic artist? I think Roseanne Barr. Roseanne? Yeah. Roseanne is profound. Talent. Yeah. There's no doubt about She doesn't get the credit she deserves because she's legitimately mentally ill. And that's one of the things I had on the podcast to highlight. She, she was hit by a car when she was 15. She, she spent nine months in a mental hospital. Lost her ability to count. She was very good at mathematics before that, and then after the car accident, the severe head injury changed her personality. Yeah, same with Kenzie. Kenzie was hit by a car when he was young as well, and changed his personality radically too. Head injuries make people very impulsive, very wild and impulsive, and oftentimes a slave to their own impulses. And I think uh, Kenzie is an example of that, as was Roseanne. But Roseanne was the first really loud brash, almost male female comedian who could kill like a man. You know, mm. she was well, what about the girl, the girl the rivers and the oh, yeah, she was great too. So yeah. I love Monique. They were great. Monique I can get to me. She 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 touches my soul every time she's on stage. Have you ever seen Miss Pat? No. Miss Pat's a monster. Really? She's a monster. She's had a crazy life. She's been on the podcast a couple times. Her life was insane. Selling crack when she was 14. She had a baby when she was 14. With a 13, she was pregnant at 13 with a married man. Had a couple kids with him. Yeah, she's she and she is so funny. She's so wild and funny. Yeah. But there's something about the. I mean, it goes back to Aristophanes. You know, it goes back to uh, uh, um, those early comics in the history of the West who were willing to tell the truth, especially as it related to the everyday experiences of ordinary people. You know, the first, Plato's text itself, you know, the Republic, was grounded in an imitation of the comic writers who were the first to really delve into everyday people's experiences, not the well-to-do, that was tragedy. Socrates, of course, the 
Jeff to Mark Twain to Nathaniel West to uh, uh, Brother Ishmael Reed. I mean, these are the great American comic writers. Twain, West, Reed. And see, comic writers are different than the tragic ones. Unprecedented, 
unstoppable courage. And courage is not widely distributed in the, in the species, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very charitable way of looking it's, at people. No, it's That's true, a, man. Most people are rather conform, they're complacent, they're complicitous, they're cowardly. Yeah. They well adjusted the injustice and want to smile and walk around as peacocks rather than cut against the grain and have to bear witness and therefore end up on a cross or like Socrates condemned um, most of the great figures that we know. Yeah. And, uh, there's more consequences for that now than ever. Oh, oh yeah. Cancel culture. That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, it's true. It's very, very true. But I mean, we live in a culture that's so corporatized, commercialized, marketized. Uh, it's all about money, 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 status, status, status. And you lose any deep sense of honor, character. It's all about what appears to be the case. It's a culture of superficial spectacle. So it's all about image. Yeah. You see? Yeah. And image is just some uh, surface phenomena. Well, I, I can't recommend I can't your book, Race Matters, enough. And one of the reasons is because of your analysis of that. Your, your, your understanding of this the superficial aspect of the pursuit that so many people are locked into from cradle to the grave. And you just, you, you encapsulated that so well. And, and the way you worded it and the way you phrased it, it's, it's so, it resonates so well. And I, I, I really admire this lifelong pursuit that you have for not just understanding these things, but explaining them in such a succinct way where it's absorbable. Like the, that book, it's in the 25th anniversary. I wanted to talk to you about it because that's the one I read. And it's so strange when you read something that's so, it's so current, even though it's 25 years old, it rings true. And does that, sometimes does that feel futile where you, you, you have the same issues for, that you spoke on 25 years ago and there's very little change in those 25 years? Mm, no, it's a wonderful deep question. No matter appreciate the times that you spent uh, reading uh, Race Matters. But no, it's never futile, though, man. Uh, it's never futile because you have a conception of victory that is not messianic or salvific. You're not trying to save people. You're not trying to be a messiah to bring some kind of grand uh, gospel to people. You're simply trying to touch people's lives. So when you enrich and enable a person's life, the way in which you've talked about that right there, you're already talking about the ways in which you were touched. Mm -hmm. That means there was no futility at all. Yeah. You know, oh, it's certainly not it's, it's futile to me. It becomes yeah. the, the fecundity of it. it and so all, all we can do, you know, as human beings, is to try to inspire one another and encourage one another and enable one another and noble one another. And that in and of itself is what the great John Coltrane called a force for good. Supreme is not love in the abstract. Right? It's a love of beauty in its concrete forms. It's a love of goodness in its concrete forms. It's a love of truth in its concrete forms. Now, I'm a Christian, revolutionary Christian, so I got a love of God mediated through a Palestinian Jew named Jesus. But that's tied to a justice that comes out of prophetic Judaism, right? And we know Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all of these religions for me uh, uh, have no whole 
wholesale monopoly on how we understand the world because they all emerge at various historical moments. But when it comes to this love that allows us to persist in a world in which cruelty and envy, contempt, manipulation, dishonesty, and that shot through all of us. Mm. So we're not finger pointing the name card. Oh no, you know, I've, I've called up Brother Donald Trump a gangster over and over again, and I, and I say that because there's a gangster inside of me. I gotta reconquer it every day. So I know gangsters when I see them. <laughs> and gangster's not a subjective expression, it's an objective condition. If you're grabbing a woman's parts, that's gangster. You're stealing somebody's oil in another country, that's gangster. You lying, and these people are sitting. America's garbage, quit lying, that's gangster. They got a critique of America, you did too, an American carnage in your inauguration. You said, or oh, you're talking about the full sisters in Congress saying, well, uh, 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 evil Jews, no. They hadn't said evil Jews, they said evil doings of Israel. Every nation state yes. has done some evil things, right? If there's a Palestinian state, which I hope there is, they're gonna do some evil things. Yeah. Every nation state has to be accountable. U.S., Ethiopia, Guatemala, Israel, China, and so forth and so on. And every nation state has been associated with certain forms of barbarism. We know that. But there's some good things, some wonderful things about Israel, some wonderful things about Palestinians and formation, creating a state. There's wonderful things about America. I mean, a lot of people say, even Brother Trump, oh, they hate America. No, they love American comics. They love American music. You ask Sister Talib, you ask Sister Priestley, y'all love Aretha? Oh, Aretha Franklin means the world to me. What about Mary J? Mary J means the world. Mary J and Aretha are as American as Donald Trump, even more in some ways. They've been here long. There are people been there <laughs> 10 generations. Yeah. Donald Trump's grandfather just arrived. His mother, straight from Scotland, Precious Mary Ann. 1930, she arrived, right? And so in that sense, you say, wait, wait, well, well, quit lying. Let's just be honest and candid, just like the comics. Let's just be honest and candid and recognize, because what is the definition of comedy? It is first drama, which is conflict emotionally felt and critically reflected upon, but it's that conflict that's rooted in incongruity. Things don't fit. So there's the possibility of hypocrisy, right? And we know hypocrisy is a tribute of vice to virtue. So that there's standards and you fall short. So you can laugh at it. Now when it's really deep comedy, it's talking about the human condition. See, that's a deeper thing. Now see, that's where you get Chekhov and Shakespeare and Joyce and the blues. Because deep comedy is the recognition of limits and incongruity at the highest levels of the mind, heart, and soul. That's a different thing. So, I mean, you can start with comedy with, uh, you know, the clowns who walk around slipping on bananas or the sophisticated professor who doesn't realize that he got a banana hanging out the back of his pocket when he's lecturing with the students. Everybody laughing. He don't know what's going on. Well, that's bodily-based comedy, you know farts and bananas and so forth and it's, it's important yes but high comedy is the highest levels of human dignity love thought music mathematics metaphysics and then recognize all of those are incongruous they're broken 
species. Now that's deep stuff. That is deep stuff. Oh, Lord, Lord. And one of the most fundamental questions of Western civilization is, how come Socrates never cries and Jesus never laughs? And that's the question Thomas More was wrestling with in the Tower of London before he was executed in his dialogues of tribulation. Socrates never sheds a tear. What does that mean? The founder of philosophy in the modern West has a love of wisdom, but he never loves people because it's impossible to love human beings and not shed tears. You go to your mama's funeral and you're not shedding tears and you're committed to the Socratic ideal of self-mastery and self-control. You need to get off the crack pipe. <laughs> get off. Show her the depths of your love for her through being outside of your self-mastery. The tears will flow. You see it? And it fits the other way. It's like your daughter. This precious thing that you got when we walk in for your daughter. You see? Mm -hmm. When she graduates, you and your wife are going to have tears of joy. That ain't the moment for self-mastery. That's not the moment to be Socratic. And so when Socrates is dying, his wife walks in Xanthippe, and she's crying. He said, get her away, get her away. Get her away. I can't stand tears. But that's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. See, I come from black folk. We start with tears. <laughs> All the mess we have to come to terms with. You know what I mean? Cries and so forth. The Hebrew scripture begins with the cries of oppressed people too, right? But then Jesus never laughs. Ooh, now see, that's a deep one. That's a deep one. That's G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton said, Jesus turns over the tables of the money changers. He does not conceal his rage.